This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Alan Pierce. I practice law with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And on today's show, we welcome two guests, Dr. Christopher Bryseth and Tomlin Perkins Cogasall, two gentlemen I met maybe two or three weeks ago in Phoenix, where at the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers annual induction dinner, uh, we had the privilege of hearing from Dr. Bryseth as our keynote speaker concerning the life and legacy of former Labor Secretary Francis Perkins. And we also presented an award on behalf of Ms. Perkins to Tomlin Perkins Cogasall, her grandson. Uh, so we're going to spend this show discussing the role that Francis Perkins had in not only the development of the unique law of workers' compensation, but in the general field of employment rights and worker rights uh, generally. Uh, before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Case Pacer Practice Management Software, uh, dedicated to the busy trial attorney. And to learn more, go to casepacer.com. And we'd also like to thank PI Now. Find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. And to do so, visit pinow.com. I'm going to first start with Dr. Christopher Bryseth. He's the immediate past president and CEO of the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute, located at the FDR Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York. Uh, Christopher received his PhD uh, from Cornell in European history, and while at Cornell, he met Frances Perkins. She was living at the Telluride House, uh, where he was in residence, and she was a guest there for five years while teaching at the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Following her death in 1965, Bryce Ith wrote an article, The Francis Perkins I Knew, which provides some of the material on Frank and Francis Perkins' life at the Telluride House. And it also served as information for another book, The Woman Behind the New Deal, written by Kristen Downey. Uh, Tomlin Perkins Cogasall uh, also knew Francis in another fashion. He was, is and was Francis Perkins' grandson. Tomlin attended the Middlesex School in Concord, uh, received a BS in Botany and Biology from the University of Maine, and he has been involved in publishing and marketing, mostly in the alternative energy field. Uh, he lives in Newcastle, Maine, uh, mid-coast at the Brick House, the Perkins Homestead, and has an affiliation with the Francis Perkins Institute that he will tell us a little bit about. So, gentlemen... Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters, and thank you for uh, agreeing to be a guest this, this edition. Good to be here. Christopher, let's, let's kind of start with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know um, terribly much in terms of details, Francis Perkins was appointed by FDR as Secretary of Labor from 1933, and she served his entire uh, terms of uh, office to 1945, being the longest-serving cabinet member in that position, and equally, if not more notably, the first woman appointed to the U.S. cabinet as a labor secretary, or for that matter, anything. I know you've studied her career. You knew her. What brought Frances Perkins to be the first woman to be appointed by FDR and to serve so long in that capacity? 
Chris. She served in all of the administrations of Governor Al Smith uh, in New York from 1919 to 1929. And she then segued right over to Governor Franklin Roosevelt from 1929 to 1933. So she was known by both governors um, and was arguably a critical policy person for each of them in terms of progressive policies that dealt with working conditions, working men and women. So that when Roosevelt was elected president in 1932, Francis Perkins was the clear preferred candidate to be Secretary of Labor, at least from the point of view of some of the major women around uh, FDR, including Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, so he asked her, to be the uh, Secretary of Labor in February 1933, and uh, she laid out the conditions in which she would accept that August position and be the first woman cabinet member, and that list includes basically the entire, what we call the Domestic New Deal. Okay, so this, she she gave some conditions. These were conditions relative to policies that she felt important not only for her to pursue as Secretary of Labor, but for FDR to pursue in terms of legislative initiatives. And I understand she did that in a, u- a unique way. How did she, how did she give those, those, uh, that list of items to FDR? Well, she told me she had written on an envelope um, right. and that uh, she, she really could argue, and she argued with Roosevelt, that she was not the right person. That a woman should not be kind of representing the major labor union Titans in the cabinet, but he persuaded her that she she was the right person, and she um, she said that if I'm going to do this job, I have to have the guarantee of your support for the 40-hour work week, minimum wage, yep. uh, time and a, time and a half, unemployment compensation, workman's compensation, um, and ultimately uh, she wanted a national health care. Uh, system and Social Security, and that those are the major ones, and they they virtually achieved all of them except the national health insurance, and that really was the New Deal. A lot of it was contained in the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, uh, but but the really heavy artillery of the New Deal was the Social Security and Unemployment Insurance a Bill of 1935. So let, let me turn now to Tomlin. Um, she was your grandmother. Um, you have a long and proud family history. Tell us, uh, first of all, Frances Perkins was not a lawyer. Um, tell us how she, how did her interest in the plight of American workers, how was that stimulated? What did she do professionally before she was tapped as Secretary of Labor? Well, um, I, probably starts back at her Mount Holyoke College days uh, when a woman named Florence Kelly came to speak uh, for the college um, and my grandmother met her and they became fast friends and in fact she became a mentor for my grandmother Um, and she was the founder of the National Consumers League which I think was a fairly extensive organization Um, by the time my grandmother uh, began working with her in New York City in around probably 1910 or so. Um, <clears throat> but it was an organization that would help consumers understand what uh, what type of 
employment situation, uh, a particular article of clothing had been made under, for instance, is this from a sweatshop or from a good factory? Um, and uh, so my grandmother was working with her when um, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire broke out in, uh, in 1911 on March 25th. Yeah, and for those of us, I know, I, I know no, sorry to interrupt, I think we, back around the 100th anniversary of the fire, I think we may have done a show on it. Tell us, uh, first of all, that, that was a turning point. The, that fire was a turning point uh, in a variety of ways uh, in terms of worker safety, workers' rights, uh, and workers' compensation. Uh, give us an idea of what happened uh, in New York City on March 25th, 1911. Yes, it, it was in Greenwich Village uh, at the time a fairly new building and therefore kind of quite, quite a bit taller than most buildings at the time. It was uh, about 10 stories tall. And there were um, sweatshops in the, the top two floors. Um, and uh, my grandmother happened to be having tea nearby with a friend uh, coincidentally, when the uh, the fire broke out and all the alarms went off and firemen running, and so they all went they went over to see what was happening and saw the horrific sight of people having to jump from the the eighth and ninth floor, I think it was. Um, and in the end, 146 people died, and um, mostly mostly immigrant women. And uh, the city of New York formed a committee called the Committee on Safety, I believe. And my grandmother was uh, suggested by, supposedly by Theodore Roosevelt, who she probably did know because she had been a Bull Moose Party uh, participant. Uh, he suggested that she be on that committee. And in fact, she ended up being the executive chair of it. And as such, in such a role, she took um, members of the committee through all kinds of surprise factory inspections at all hours of the morning, making them climb through narrow doorways and down icy ladders to, uh, to find, uh, you know, the, the egress that was allowed fire escape <laughs> and, and exit for, for people. And uh, she just, she became uh, very um, involved with helping to determine what happens. And and preventing it from happening, and out of that committee came things like exit signs. <clears throat> um, the I think there's still a rule in place in New York City that all workplace trash baskets have to be emptied at the end of the day, and that was happening because that was the cause of the fire was these these bins under the sewing machines that would accumulate all of the uh, the scraps from the clothing of making these uh, shirtwaists, and uh, they were very flammable. So somebody must have flicked. Uh, an ash into one of the into one of the bins, and uh, that caused the the fire to start. I believe that's the theory. And uh, for those of you who appreciate the history of workers' comp, there was no workers' comp in any state in March of 1911. And one of the ironies of this uh, date of March 25th that barely 24 hours earlier, uh, specifically on March 24th, 1911. The, appellate, the highest court in New York, the New York Court of Appeals, struck down the New York workers' compensation law as being unconstitutional. And barely 24 hours later, we had 146 deaths uh, for which there were no benefits uh, of compensation. And I believe any benefits that may have gone to the survivors of the families uh, came from the owners of the... Um, 
factory that burned, uh, which had very little in the way of assets, hence very little in the way of uh, remuneration for those losses. And it wasn't lo much long after that that the workers' comp law was reintroduced, and this time through Teddy Roosevelt and others, including uh, Francis Perkins, uh, workers' comp was finally adopted, and of course it was adopted in several other states beginning in April of 2011, so uh, 1911 rather. Christopher, tell us about the Frances uh, work in New York before she was appointed. I know uh, you both touched a little bit about her uh, role with Al Smith. Uh, she was what, a social worker by, by occupation or trade? Well, yes, but she was more than that. Um, she, uh, she was very much a social scientist. As, as that concept was just beginning to develop. So that when she approached the problems in Chicago at Hull House with Jane Addams, she was there as a social worker, but she's also there to study poverty and, and what could be done. And, uh, and she then did it in Philadelphia, where she worked with immigrant women who were prostitutes uh, before she went to New York, where she got a master's degree, basically in social science, political science, economics. Uh, and her conclusion through this experiencing of, of the poor and the kind of conditions that contributed to poverty uh, was that government had a role to play in, cre in changing the systems that contributed to poverty. And so her first success was a 54-hour act that uh, limited the number of hours a woman could work in any one week to 54 hours. And that was a huge triumph for women laborers. Uh, and it was a breakthrough for her in seeing the importance of public laws to, to affect the conditions by which people worked. She actually, through Al Smith's, who was not yet governor, but, but was counseling her, uh, she worked with Tammany Hall, and he was part of Tammany Hall, which is the group that really organized the Democratic Party in those days. And she learned how to deal with um, with Tammany leaders, and they respected her. Um, you know, and one of the things that, that Talman could tell you more about than I is that she, she discovered that um, if they thought of her as their mother, uh, that she was not an in, in, in intimidating Factors. So she began dressing in a very matronly way for a young woman who was extraordinarily attractive. Uh, and she wore her tricorn hat, uh, which, well, again, made her matronly. Uh, and from that relationship with Smith and with Robert Wagner, who were the co-chairs of the Factory Investigating Commission, uh, over a three-year period, they basically developed the legal framework that would be at the heart of Al Smith's uh, governorship. And it was the most progressive uh, governorship in the country, which is part of how he became the Democratic nominee um, in 1928. He tried in 1924, but he actually got the nomination in 28. And he was a, he was a first also. He was the first uh, Roman Catholic to head a ticket. That's right, which is part of why he lost a vicious anti-Catholicism in the 1920s. Um, and Frances Perkins, by the way, uh, campaigned for him. She even, um, at one, one rally, she, a tomato came hurling and smashed on her white blouse as she was 
campaigning for Al Smith in the Middle West. Um, she, at that point, by the way, remembered her grandmother and said, something happens to you, just carry on as if nothing has happened. And by the way, I watched that quality in her. Nothing rattled her. She knew how to work through any any problem. And then, of course, she, when she became Secretary of Labor, being the only woman on the cabinet, she had to learn how to work with all these high-powered men uh, heading up the major cabinet positions and the new agencies that were formed by the New Deal. And the skills that she developed during the 20s under Smith uh, were really why she could succeed in the role at the national level. At this point, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about Francis Perkins. We'll be right back. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, Case Pacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see Case Pacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, where we're talking about the life and legacy of Francis Perkins. Uh, Tomlin, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation. Uh, Your grandmother was working and living in New York. It was the middle or, or well into the Great Depression by the time of 1932, and Franklin Roosevelt taps her to not only be in his administration, but to take on the role of uh, cabinet member and uh, first woman cabinet member. She had some difficult uh, decisions to make about moving from New York. Is that correct? Right, right, right. Yes, she did. Um, Chris Bryce uh, earlier um, enumerated the uh, conditions that she kind of put forward before she would accept uh, the Roosevelt FDR's offer to um, to become Secretary of Labor, and um, it was also hard to her. And I think that that list, in a way, was kind of a uh, shooting for the moon, if you will. Uh, she didn't want necessarily to go to Washington at all. Uh, she had her life set up in New York City and a, a fairly reasonable commute to Albany uh, for for work, and I think she spent some evenings and nights up in Albany with the, with the Roosevelt's, actually, when he was governor. Um, but And she had her husband, my grandfather, who had uh, what today would be called bipolar disorder, and um, he was all kind of set up in New York, and my mother, her daughter, was going to school there, so she would have, you know, have been uprooting a lot of established uh, 
comfortable routines um, and somewhat necessary too, because she was she was the sole breadwinner uh, in the family. Um, but she decided when uh, her grandmother had uh, a number of aphorisms that she would share with my grandmother, and uh, one of them was, "If the door is open for you, my dear, you must walk through and do your best on the other side." And uh, so she she heard that voice, I think, and figured, "All right, if I'm going to do this, we're going to get a lot of we're going to do everything that needs to be done." And that's when she made that list. And um, and I believe that uh, the story goes that Roosevelt's response to after she said pretty much, "You don't want me for your for your Secretary of Labor if you don't want to work on these things, Franklin." And he said, Francis, I won't try to stop you. <laughs> that was his way of giving her affirmation. And um, so, so the rest, you know, they went ahead and, and did it. And she, uh, she would have found uh, nannies and to take care of my mother and and other people who could take care of her husband. And uh, so it all worked out, obviously. Did they move with her to Washington or did they stay in New York? No, they stayed in New York. Most of the time. In fact, um, my grandfather, she she kind of asked permission, I believe, uh, of Paul Paul Wilson, uh, her husband, um, and he said, "All right, you know, if you think you should, but please come visit me as much as you can." And so they kind of agreed that she would try to make a trip up every weekend, which she did. Um, she really stuck to it, and and. Uh, came back every weekend to visit. She was born in 1880, which meant she was 53 when she joined the cabinet or thereabouts. I believe she died in the mid-60s, 1965 or so, so she would have been in her mid-80s. Here we are in 2017. We're talking to two people who knew her. Tomlin, what do you remember of her as your grandmother? Uh, uh, Was her role in history and in... uh, putting together the New Deal and everything she did before and after. Was that how you thought of her, or did, did she talk about it with you? I know you were a very young boy when she passed. Yeah, right. I was 11 when she died, and no, she really didn't talk much about um, her career at, at all. Um, but the main things were church. She wanted me to go to church, Um every Sunday that we could. Um, and if I didn't fidget in the pew too much, we might have a, a milkshake afterwards. <laughs> um, but uh, church really was uh, the first thing I think of really for her because it was, a, um, I didn't realize at the time, but it, it turns out um, that it really was a, a strong motivating factor for her and a guiding principle, set of principles, um, basically, you know, the, the commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, um, and help your fellow man, is uh, what she operated on, um, and, and all that goes with it. Um, and, and in recognition of that, in 2009, the Episcopal Church made her what's called a holy woman, or saint, uh, synonymous with saint. Um, and added her to the calendar of lesser feasts and fasts in the Episcopal calendar. Um, 
she she accomplished so much good for so many uh, in her period of uh, working as Secretary of Labor, and of course before that, uh, working uh, as Commissioner of Labor. She was, I believe, New York's first Commissioner of Labor, and also, of course, first woman. Uh, yeah, under Al Smith, she was made a commissioner of about six six other guys. By the time Al Smith ran for president and she was still on the commission, she had become chair of that commission. And then FDR inherited her as the chair. And it was under his administration that it became a commissioner, not a commission, not a labor commission, but a commissioner. And FDR must have said, well, why don't you be the commissioner, Francis? <laughs> so everything I've learned about her career has come later in life for me because somehow you sort of took her for granted. And, and her her daughter, my mother, didn't like to talk about her much, so I didn't pick up much there. It wasn't until later in life, perhaps in 1980, when the labor building in Washington, D.C., was was named the Francis Perkins Labor Building is pretty much the beginning of my sort of uh, dawning of wow my grandmother was quite a quite an amazing woman you know mm-hmm. and you know it, it's not uh, difficult to sit here and and think of current events and what's happening uh, politically today which today being uh, early into uh, Donald Trump's uh, term as president. And, you know, one of the issues that has come up recently has been the uh, veracity of statistics for unemployment. And, you know, uh, when the statistics were favorable to President Obama, they were fake. And when they were favorable um, at the beginning of this year, of course, now they're uh, not fake. And uh, I think Christopher was just telling me off break that um, there's a recent article in one of our major publications references Francis in this regard why don't you why don't we close with that story Christopher well it's Adam Davidson uh, in the current New Yorker uh, has got an article on the issue of the validity of governmental statistics um, as seen by the Obama administration and then seen by Trump administration and and by Donald Trump during the campaign when he questioned their their accuracy and validity and the story starts with Francis Perkins in 1930, challenging the accuracy of of the Bureau of Labor Statistics under Herbert Hoover, uh, which she determined from the New York experience uh, was overly rosy. It was much too encouraging of what was happening. This is now January 1930. The stock market crashed the previous October, and in New York, the unemployment was soaring. So she, without asking the without asking the governor, she uh, called the press and said uh, that these the president's statistics were inaccurate. Things were much worse, and she had checked with other state um, statistical bureaus, and the unemployment rate was going up all over the country. Mm-hmm. She then called Roosevelt, the governor, and said, um, "I've done something very bad. What, what mood are you in?" And he assured her he was in a good mood, and then she told him what she'd done, and he he said, bully, but acknowledged that um, had she asked him, he probably would have said no. But the result of it was that that Perkins, as the commissioner of labor in New York, um, and Roosevelt as the governor, 
became known as the real authorities on unemployment as the depression deepened. Mm-hmm. And as the two of them and others in the administration, but particularly the two of them, began extending the progressive uh, policies of Smith to deal with unemployment uh, and to to honor the workman's compensation laws that were now developed in New York State, uh, they became the kind of uh, couple that uh, had national stature to deal with the Depression. And she got Roosevelt to convene a meeting of governors uh, to deal with the unemployment issue, which, mm-hmm. of course, was the central issue as the Depression deepened. And that became... Uh, part of why he was the odds-on favorite to uh, get the Democratic nomination in 1930 and to take on Hoover. So yeah, her, well. her, she, she was an odds-on choice to be Secretary of Labor after that kind of supportive role she played for Governor Roosevelt. Well, with that, I think we'll conclude our show. Uh, I want to say personally that Francis Perkins has always been uh, a hero of mine, and it's a particular delight to learn more and even more importantly to actually speak to and get to know two people who knew her in uh, various capacities and i want to thank you both thank you uh, for carrying on her legacy and being a guest on workers comp matters so uh, on behalf of legal talk network this is alan pierce go out and make it a day that matters thanks for listening to workers comp matters today on the legal talk network Hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.